Hey everyone, and welcome back to Country Music Made Me. Thank you so much for joining us once again. If you haven't already, please be sure to check out our website, countrymusicmademe.com. There you can listen to all of our episodes and also sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on all of our upcoming guests and also receive exclusive content like acoustic performances from some of our past guests. Just head over to countrymusicmademe.com and hit that subscribe button. You can also find us on any streaming platform. So if streaming is your thing, just head over to your favorite, search Country Music Made Me, give us a follow, and maybe even leave us a review while you're there. On today's show, we are excited, we are thrilled, we are honored to welcome Jeff Hanna of the legendary group Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. We had a great time talking about the group's history, some of the exciting moments along the way, and their new album, Dirt Does Dylan. So please enjoy our conversation with Jeff Hanna. What is it like now, the touring and show experience for you? It's great. We were so, you know, like everyone that that's in the music biz, uh, that long sort of uh, imposed break that we had, uh, that 18 months off was a drag, you know? I mean, for, it happened for a very good reason, obviously, but we're so happy to be back, back out there playing in front of folks again. And the audiences have been just terrific. Was there ever a time within that break that you thought you might not come at, back as a band? Not really. You know, honestly, we've done, this is like, this is what we really put on the planet to do, we all believe, you know. So, uh, you know, well, the, the, our, our only question was whether there would be, would it, whether any of us would get a chance to get back out there. You know, initially, March of, in late March of 20, it was bleak. Um, so again, once we got back at it, which was, uh, got back at it, I should say, which was, uh, August of last year, we went out and played about 35, 36 shows. It felt so good, you know, to get back on the bike and felt terrific. Audiences again were unbelievable. And when was the last time you had like a year and a half off stage? Like, was there ever a point since you were like 17 that you've been away from the stage that long? No, no, 18, but yeah, no, that, no, absolutely. I mean, we tried to take a year off once and it ended up being 10 months, you know, uh, and we still, we played shows in since 66, when our band started, we played shows in every year since, you know, some, some fewer than others, but, uh, you know, getting back at it was great. No, we didn't have any, we, you know, it, like everyone, we were just concerned, what's it going to be like, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, will the audience be masked up? Will there be, we, will we be dealing with, um, you know, uh, vaccination mandates, all that stuff. I mean, we're all totally vaxxed, I might add. We, that's just, we feel like we need to do that for, you know, our responsibilities to our families, you know, to each other's bandmates. So, but, so we feel pretty safe getting out there, but it's random. You never know. I mean, you can get, you can go to the grocery store and get, laid up with this virus so we're just winging it like everyone else and you talk about getting your start back in the 60s and now i wanted to ask you along this journey i mean you've had such a storied history do you ever get tired of talking about it not not really well i mean i mean i was just saying you know we're promoting a new record right now so i've been talking about it a lot more recently 
than I had in a, in a typical touring year because we had this other component. Um, but no, I don't really get tired of talking about it. It's been a great run and we've gotten to do some really super cool stuff. So no, it's, as long as the listener doesn't get start rolling their eyes or, you know, okay, Jeff, nice talking to you. See you. <laughs> <laughs> I want to dive in a bit deeper because country music made me it's about the journey I love talking about an artist about their musical journey and I mean usually I'm only covering a couple of years so for you it's different in covering this whole time but I really wanted to go back to the beginning and learn about you as a musician away from the band and how music developed within you and do you remember when you were younger like was there an age or a time of your life when music started to develop or has it always been something that you remember being within you well music's always been around me when i was growing up there was a lot of my no one in my family played an instrument but my parents were both really good singers uh amateurs of course but they were great and uh there was always wonderful music playing in our house I mean, my first memories are probably of, you know, great jazz greats like Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald. They were, my mom and dad loved those records. Uh, later on, I had an older brother that started bringing home rock and roll records when I was a kid. I was a little kid. He's a, he was a young teenager. Um, and that was my first exposure to the, the beginnings of the pioneers of rock and roll, Elvis, Chuck Berry, you know, Fats Domino. Little Richard, that stuff. And that just blew my mind. I love that. But I didn't really have an interest in playing till the folk music uh, boom started in the mid 60s. And I got my first guitar, I think, I think I was 15. You know, uh, I didn't, I mean, I think I got one at 14, but couldn't really play it till I was 15. And I met a, I met a guy when, I, when my family moved to California, I met a guy first day of school that we really hit it off and had this common interest in surfing, but also in, uh, in playing acoustic guitar. So he ended up, by the way, Bruce Kunkel is his name. He ended up being one of the founding members of the Derby. Right. So that's how those things happen. It's crazy, right? And that first guitar, tell me about that. Was that something that you asked for? Or was it something that just sort of showed up around the house that you started playing? Um, I had a I had a buddy when I lived in Colorado when I was in middle school that he had a guitar and he said, man, yeah, we got to get you a guitar. These things are really fun. And he played a few things for me. I was like, yeah, that's cool. I, I, I like to have one of those until I got it. Then I was I, I went to a pawn shop in Denver and uh, it was kind of a I don't know where it's gone. It's not something that, that I would love to have back in my guitar collection. But but when I moved to California again, uh, my friend Bruce had some funky harmony, you know, a, a, more of an a, a economy line instrument. And we started looking around for, you could buy, used guitars were cheap back then. So we were able to buy a couple that were pretty neat and got started. And he showed me some stuff and then I learned some things. And, you know, you pick things up from your buddies. Right. But uh, by the time I finished high school, I really had the bug. Bruce and I had started a, a jug band. And uh, which, if you're not familiar with jug band music, it's kind of uh, most of it was written in the 1930s and, and earlier than that, 20s and 30s. But it's kind of the influences are like blues music and ragtime music and a little bit of maybe mountain music as well. And you play, you know, the instruments are weird. Like you've got acoustic guitar, banjo, mandolin, 
harmonica, but you also have the washboard and, and a washtub bass. Those are the rhythm section. So I play the washboard and Bruce played the washtub bass. And, you know, we, we went to different colleges when we graduated high school. And uh, I met some guys at the school that I went to. And we started to, again, start talking about having a band. And I said, if you ever play jug band music, and they, they were fans of the genre, but none of them had played that before. So I said, hey, well, me and my buddy Bruce, I called Bruce up. And this became sort of the, the seeds of, of the derping, as we know it is, the way it is now. You know? Right. And back in that day, I mean, there wasn't maybe an openness to knowing the steps to be a musician like now with the internet and everything it's maybe easier to see that path but when you guys started did you know the path to being a band or was that even a thought or were you just playing to have fun and it sort of snowballed into something eventually well we were lucky that we uh we hung out at this guitar shop called mccabe's guitar store in long beach california they were always advertising uh concerts and different clubs in, in Southern California. So there were these coffee houses that we would go to as fans, you know, to check it out. And you know, I mean, our exposure to really great music was vast living in Southern California to see anything. Right. Amazing. Especially the folk clubs. The folk clubs were great. Um, and then when we got started, at, you know, when in the spring of 1966, uh, we entered a, con uh, a talent contest at one of, in one of those folk clubs, a place called The Paradox in Orange County, California. And we won the contest. And by then, our friend Jackson Brown had joined the band, that Jackson Brown, you know. And uh, that was really fun. He stayed with us for a few months, and he was replaced by a guy named John McEwen. So that band, as a jug band, we got signed to a record deal, made one, two, three, four albums, uh, in two years. <laughs> That's the way we did it back then. Just right, yeah. And then at the end of uh, 1968, we just went on a long break. We, we just, we'd gotten burnt out. We were on the road all the time and we got a little tired. We wanted to kind of expand our musical horizons beyond the jug band music. So we got back together, uh, four of us got back together in uh, the summer of 69 and uh, added another guy, Jimmy Ibbotson, and we started playing the sort of classic color. Cal, sorry, the classic California country rock back then, which right. included bands like Poco and the Flying Burrito Brothers, and you know the Birds had had done a country album as well. So that was kind of in the water. That was in our scene in the clubs and the and our our mutual friends that were songwriters and singers. That was kind of the the standard musical style for all of us. And during that break, did you have the intention of coming back together? Did you know what was going to happen during that break? No, we thought we were, we, we were pretty sure we were breaking up, you know, actually, and I got a great job. I got to play with Linda Ronstadt. So that was incredible. One of the greatest singers period ever, I think, but she was a, she was one of the pioneers, one of the early founders of the whole California country rock thing as well. Um, so no, but after, you know, after about five months of playing with Linda, I ran into John McEwen, who'd been, you know, we played together in the jug band. And we started talking about, you know, let's give it another go. So 
what became a hiatus as opposed to like, you know, they're done and they're coming back. So, And so when you came back, did you have a focus of what you wanted and that you wanted this to be a career? Did you know that this is what you wanted to be doing? Well, I don't think any of us really looked, you know, more than a couple of years down the road. We're like, hey, we're playing in a band, seeing the world, having a blast, um, you know, and getting, getting paid to play music. It's pretty great. Uh, but never did we, we didn't have like a five-year plan or a 10-year plan, much less a 20 or 30 or 40 year, you know. It's just that life happens, you know, and it just got us down the road. We've been really lucky that so many great things have, have come our way. I mean, we were, you know, we had this, we had this career in rock and roll because back then in the early 70s, the country rock bands were playing with, you know, bands like Z, we toured with ZZ Top and, um, um, you know, uh, uh, Aerosmith. Uh, we would be a typical bill for us would just be a rock festival. You know, metal didn't exist yet. So it was more like what we would consider, you know, classic rock. You know, Bands like the Marshall Tucker Band or the Allman Brothers as well. Um, so that was kind of, you know, and we did that for a long time. We, again, we were on the sort of the rock pop side of the dial on the radio. And then uh, around 80, 1983, I believe it was, we came to Nashville and started making records basically for, for the country, for country radio, you know, just sort of change formats. Right. Because the country rock thing had kind of faded uh, in terms of the mainstream in rock and roll. I mean, a lot of those bands continued to play as, as did we, but we saw this opportunity because the music in Nashville had really changed and they were embracing acts like us that, you know, there was a band, Alabama, we heard Alabama's records and we thought, wow, you know, that's not that dissimilar from what we've been doing since the 70s. So right. we came down here and we were, I think because of that record, Will the Circle Being Broken, that we did back in 71, the Nashville community was very welcoming. So we were lucky in that regard. And throughout your career, as you've pivoted and as you've evolved as artists and evolved your music, do you think you've ever like fallen into a sound at all? Or have you always just been able to pivot and evolve and sort of meet, make each part of your career a new and uh, evolving sound? Well, well you, constantly, you constantly want to think you're growing, you know, uh, because we're, you know, music is a living thing. Uh, and of course the songs are always at the center of that. We, uh, you know, once we got that, once we kind of figured out who we were in 1970, uh, you know, what we wanted to play, it all, it was all really dictated more with the songs really led us down whatever path that was. Um, you know, we have, a, there is a style of music that we really love that involves, you know, the combination of acoustic and electric instruments. Uh, I think a big part of our sound comes from our harmonica player, Jimmy Fadden, who's like, you know, I always use this analogy, but Mickey Raphael, who's played for years with Willie Nelson, and you hear a Willie song, and there's that harp, and it's, it's Mickey. Well, with a dirt band, most of the time on our records, you'll hear Jimmy's harmonica as well. So that's a, that's a, a big part of what we do. You know, and every, you know, we have electric guitar, and fiddle, and mandolin, and 
Bob Carpenter is a really great keyboard player and he plays piano, Hammond organ, and also accordion. So you got the old and the new. We love combining all those um, various elements. And as you've evolved, you've added some members. I mean, your son has joined the band, which has got to be exciting. But within that, as you add some younger blood into the group, does that evolve the music as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the, there's two guys that we're talking about here. One is my son, Jamie Hanna. And uh, the other one is Ross Holmes, who plays fiddle and mandolin for our band. Well, Jamie and Ross are just like really accomplished musicians long before they ever started playing with us. Jamie played with the Mavericks, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Yeah. Um, and Gary Allen Band, who's a, Gary Allen, is a great country singer from Nashville. Uh, he spent a total of uh, 15 years playing in those two bands. Ross, uh, before the Dirt Band, played with Mumford and Sons and uh, uh, Bruce Hornsby, who's one of our favorite, a great musician and a really good friend of ours as well. So they brought that, they brought that energy and that fresh, you know, that vitality to what we were doing, which is, has been great, you know, that they're, that energy, that energy. And then they both are really funny and great fun guys to be around, you know, so that's contagious. So all of a sudden the whole vibe in the band lifted, not just musically, but on a personal level as well. Right. And so you mentioned all these names and touring with big acts back in the day. Now I found it interesting that these days it's like, Oh, you toured with these legends, but back in the day, they were just acts. They were some of the bigger acts, right? They weren't necessarily legends back then. So within your career, as you've been able to play with so many amazing people and become friends with so many amazing people, does it feel different? Like, does it feel like you're friends with these famous people or because you've been around it so long, is it just normal? Like, is it just part of life that they're just someone else and you're almost a fan of them being able to work with them and be around them? Well, it's a strange thing. You know, when we started uh, back to Southern California again, there was a club called the Troubadour, which is a legendary club in, in Hollywood that, um, the, the people that would be hanging out in the bar at the Troubadour on any given night would be folks like Don Henley and Glenn Fry who were talking about starting this band, the Eagles, right? right. Linda that's there, you know, and Dan Fogelberg might sort of make his way through the bar. It, it was just, it was kind of a clubhouse for all of us because we were all at this club sharing our music and, and rooting for each other. Um, and, you know, and then 40 years later, it's like, yeah, they're, you know, this is Rock and Roll Hall of Fame members, but they're just our buddies. But you're, you're right. I mean, it's like, where, do you, where does it become? Are there acts that I admire? Absolutely. And I, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful that I've known all those guys all these years. Um, but it's kind of strange. It, yeah, it's, it's same way here in Nashville. Um, getting to know Amy Lou Harris, for example, and guys like Vince Gill, who's, He's, he's like younger generation from us. He's a few years younger than we are, but he's just a pal of ours. And we hang out and talk about guitars and get a burger or whatever. You know, it's, I found that most of the folks that I've met in this experience and in this life that, that I really admired turned out to be somebody you want, you would want to admire. You know, it's that there's an old adage about don't meet your heroes. You'll be disappointed. Most of the time I'm not, 
and it turns out to be a really great experience. Right. Yeah. And I saw a photo um, you were playing Willie's 4th of July picnic in 1974. You had posted the photo and someone had commented, I, I can't remember who it was, but they said just one of so many times that we escaped arrest. Now, I was interested in that, if that was a joke or what the band was like back in the 70s. And did you have your wild times? Oh, you know, <laughs> we, you know, we definitely took it to the limit a little bit back in the 70s. It was a little, it was a little crazy. I think Jimmy was, there was some tongue in cheek in there, but, you know, I think that the, in his statement, but um, it, it was wild and crazy, you know, the whole there was a lot of marijuana, which is legal a lot of places now, was not back then. And if you're on a stage with Willie Nelson, you know that, what's that smell? <laughs> that was definitely going on, but it was great. You know, we're, we're all lucky to be still standing. And uh, again, we're, we take it a lot easier now. <laughs> <laughs> and how lucky do you feel at this point in your career to still be touring as Nitty Gritty and not have to sort of break off and tour as a solo act and Jeff Hanna formerly from Nitty Gritty. How cool is that to still be with the band after all these years? Well, it's great. I, I, I you know, I occasionally I'll go out and play shows. My wife is a really accomplished singer songwriter named Matresa Byrne, who's written his for, you know, everybody really. She's amazing. She's in the hall of fame as a songwriter. She and I will go out occasionally and do these, uh, like a singer-songwriter acoustic show. Right. Do acoustic guitars, tell some stories of where the songs came from, you know, and sing with each other. That's really fun. But, excuse me, but typically, I'm more of a band person. I, and with her as well, it's like I like collaboration. The idea of going on stage all by myself with a guitar is totally unappealing to me. I just... I love having that support system and I like, I like collaborating. Right. And now you talked about going to Nashville in the eighties. Now I find it so interesting because for me, I was born in the eighties and fishing in the dark is what I know of the nitty gritty dirt band. That is the nitty gritty dirt band. And for so many years, I thought that was, that was who the band was. That was their hit. They had formed in the eighties and they had this song and then you you know, you do your research and learn, no, that was actually sort of the second part of your career. So where does that song fit for you within your timeline and what within what the band has done? Well, that song was a hit in 1987. So it's 35 years ago. So what are you, 35 years old? <laughs> I am 40. <laughs> you got yeah. your little, it came out. Um, that, uh, that was an interesting point in our career. When, when the song came to us, our friend Jim Fotoglo, who, by the way, plays in our band now and has for the last uh, five or six years, um, Jimmy wrote that tune. We've been friends for a long time. What I noticed was there was a real change in our fan base, not so much because of the type of music we were playing, but because it, in terms of the age, like little kids teenagers, young adults started showing up at our shows that hadn't been there maybe a couple of years prior to that. And we had, we did have a really great run of uh, success at radio starting in the early eighties and through the nineties, uh, the country radio. And we had songs like Long Hard Road, Modern Day Romance, 
that were maybe a little more in the traditional side of country music. Then Fishing came along, and our buddy Josh Leo, who produced that record, made a great record out of it. He's got those big drums and you know this insistent bass line and big guitars, and and it's a, the song's an anthem for me yeah. today. We when we first heard that, I remember hearing that demo just, oh my gosh. Let's get a beer. That <laughs> was the first thing I thought, seriously, because this is, I don't often hear a song and think that's a hit. And we heard that one and thought, that's a big hit. And it's going to fit us like a glove. Well, the other part of it is, the other part of the equation is, and we all write songs, I might add, and we've all had a, a fair bit of success as songwriters, but, and a bunch of dirt band, a bunch of dirt band songs have, been, have come from within our group. But when we heard Fishing, the thing that, that really uh, was compelling to us, in addition to loving the tune, was that we thought we could make it our own. We could own that territory, which I think is, if, if you're an artist and you're doing a song that you didn't create, that's the, you know, that's job one is making it your own. Yeah. But yeah, that was fun. That was five weeks at number one in Canada. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Man, you know, it's a bigger hit up there than it was down here. Um, in the States, it was it did go to number one, but it didn't, you know, it didn't sit up there for a month and a half. So right. Uh, it, it the crowd still love it. Though. I mean, when you talk about where does it fit in our career, early, early success was Mr. Bojangles in 1971. Yeah. And then we had a couple of uh big pop hits, Make a Little Magic and American Dream in 1980. Then we pivoted into the mainstream country world. And then like three years into that, here comes fishing in the dark. And that was a game changer, you know? But what it did is it, it, it what I love about that tune is that we didn't lose our, any fans of it. It wasn't like, oh, they've gone in whatever direction. They were like, that's cool. So all the folks that love Long High Road and Modern Day Romance still loved fishing in the dark. So we've been, again, super fortunate. And now, so coming into your new music, you have the new album, Dirt Does Dylan. Now talk about how this kind of came about and when the idea came to do an album dedicated to Dylan. Well, at the, at the end of uh, this lineup that we, we've been referencing a minute ago, the current lineup in the band, we all started playing together in 2018. So we were on the road for two years, 18 and 19. At the end of 19, we started talking about getting in the studio and making a record because our band hadn't made a studio album. We did a live album celebrating 50 years back in 2016. It was a really fun night and it was great. A lot of our friends showed up to help us blow out the candles on the birthday cake, you know. Um, but we hadn't done a studio album since 2009. Right. So, we started talking to different folks, a friend of ours, Ray Kennedy, he's a brilliant record producer. He's done Lucinda Williams and Steve Earle's albums for many years, two of my favorite artists. Um, we started talking about doing a record at the beginning of 2020. And we, we discussed, you know, diving into our original material, which there's always lots of us. We got six guys that all write songs. Um, but somebody suggested, have you ever considered doing a single source album, you know? tribute record you know just to this writer or that writer and the name dylan came up immediately because 
you know, we've been fans since we were teenagers of, of Bob Dylan's work. And, um, and, he, and he can take you in a lot of different musical places. His country stuff is really great, I might add. But his rock and roll, just is, he's just such a, I mean, he's, you know, he's the GOAT. He's greatest of all time, as they say. So, and he has hundreds of wonderful songs. So we, we just dove in. We, we all agreed it was a great idea. We've never done that. We thought that would be so cool to do something, uh, you know, outside of the box for us. But knowing that the material is going to be great because it's Bob Dylan. Yeah, exactly. And so how did you go about picking the, what is there, 10 tracks on the album? How did you go about sifting through all his material and picking out 10 tracks? Well, we didn't, you know, again, obviously we didn't sift through all of his material. Right. But we, you know, we started uh, exchanging emails at the end of 19, talking about this song and that song. And we had maybe 80 songs whittled down from hundreds to like 80. And by the time, and we, you know, in, in, in subsequent conversations, by the time we got to the studio in early March of 2020, we had it down to about 40 songs. So there we, we showed up, got the acoustic guitars out and started singing and playing these songs. And if it felt right, we'd start, we'd hit record. We'd start, you know, get, go to our stations, Jimmy go to the drums and Jim to the bass and blah, 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 you know, scattered about the room, the uh, race, Ray, Ray Kennedy studio there in Nashville. And then it would be, we'd work on a tune for, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. If we got to the one hour point, we started feeling like, work, is this working? And so, some of the tunes just kind of fell out and the ones that worked were so obvious to us that this is where we want to go with it. So we ended up recording, I think 12 or 13 songs. And at the end of the day, uh, we kept eight of those from the initial sessions. Then the world shut down. I might add five days, five or 10 days after we finished that first batch of sessions, we went out on the road to play our first and last shows in 2020. Uh, and then everybody scattered. Bob Carpenter lives in California. Jimmy Fadden lives in, in Florida and in Sarasota. And uh, the rest of us live here in Tennessee, but the studio locked down and that was it. We wondered if we would ever finish that record. Right. And so when did when you came back in, how did that feel after, like we talked about off the start, being away for longer than you ever had been? Was it almost rejuvenating to get back in there and continue work on it? Well, we kind of, we really just kind of put our toes in the water. I mean, I, I, I started talking to Ray again, Ray Kennedy. And I said, well, how do you, how would you feel about, you know, this is like four months later. And he's been, he had been doing a few sessions with, with uh, Lucinda Williams in the studio. And he says, it feels like a pretty safe environment in here. Again, there's no vaccine. There's, you know, well, kind of, again, sort of, staying close to home in the fall uh we started you know we'd been listening to these rough tapes that we had you know the rough mixes that we had done in march of 20 so in the fall of 20 uh i started talking to the guys in our management company and about i just hate that we have this music that we all really love and it's never going to see the light of day so we talked about let's finish times are changing and that from the jump always felt like a song that we could include guest artists. 
Right. So I, I made some phone calls and everybody said yes. And these are, you know, again, these are all artists that we knew really well and super gracious and incredibly talented people. Jason Isbell, uh, Roseanne Cash, Steve Earle, and the Warren Treaty, uh, Michael Trotter Jr. and Tanya Trotter. Amazing, just incredible folks. And they, they showed up, Jason showed up first and the Warren Treaty showed up, I think later in the same day. Um, a couple months went by and uh, Roseanne Cash actually did her vocal from her studio in New York that her husband, John Leventhal is a great record producer as well. So they recorded it there at their place. Uh, um, and Steve Earle did his vote, his verse up in New York as well. Ray Kennedy was doing a Steve Earle album a couple months later. So Steve was, was uh, kind enough to sing that last verse on Times Very Changing. So we put it all together and uh, we finished the record and we were super happy about it. So we put it out as a single, really just to get out into the world. And obviously right. the world we were all living in, you know, the song is a profound lyric uh, and it's, it's timeless and timely as well. It always suits, it's good for, you know, it always seems to matter. And so uh, that was the first taste of that record. That, that, that was out in February of 21. Right. And the band at this point, we still haven't set up and played together at all. Uh, my son Jamie and Ross, and, and Ross as well, and Jim Photoglow, they would come in for a few hours here and there and sing some background vocals or add a little of this or that on guitar or fiddle, mandolin. And so these songs started taking a shape and, and we were getting closer to the finished deal on them. When we decided finally, we, start, we made the decision, I think it was in early summer of 21, or maybe it was late spring that we would go ahead and start touring. Didn't work out till the end of August seemed to be as soon as we could, you know, cause you got to book these things way ahead of time. Yeah, you know, exactly. Say, Hey, we're going to show up next week. So in the middle of August, uh, Jimmy and Bob, you know, flew in and we all reconvened at Ray's studio and we cut two more songs uh, forever young and uh, don't think twice and got back out on the road played a bunch of shows and it felt great. Um, and then when we got off the road, Ray and I got back in the studio and mixed it all. And here we go. You know, we found a partner record company MRI records. Uh, so it's actually NGDV records, but they're, they're really great folks. And they are, they're our distribute our distribution arm worldwide for the album. And, you know, and we found out in January that, we're going to get to get this record out there. The one that we thought we'd never, that we'd ever see the light of day. So we're really excited. About it. It's great having a new record go on time. That's awesome. And I just wanted to ask you about sort of your journey with Bob Dylan, because I think I saw that your first concert seeing him was December in 1964, that it was just him and his guitar and his harmonica. And I think you mentioned you were midway through your senior year of high school back then and so what has your journey been like with him and his music well i was a fan I, I think i became a bob dylan fan was like maybe 15 or 16 when his first couple albums came out and he played it, it was really it's really crazy to consider it excuse me um 
He played in this high school across town from where I grew up in Long Beach, Wilson High School in Long Beach, California. And so, you know, my uh, my girlfriend and I and and uh, and half a dozen of our buddies all went. The tickets were four dollars. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we sat in that auditorium and he came out by himself, you know, no band. He was still he was still acoustic. He went electric. You know, he got a rock band, you know. Did his whole Bob Dylan, the the rock musician. That didn't happen till about ten months later. Oh, okay. Port Folk Festival. I believe that was the summer of '65. But he was still he was great. You know, I mean, he had his. You know, he'd been in England hanging out with the Beatles, and it's like, yeah, man, this guy's super cool. And he was just a few years older than we were, so it was, you know. Typically, most of the folk singers that I, that we admired, because folk music was our thing, but mo- most of the the people that we were really you know admire uh, just were big influences on us. Were folks that were a generation or sometimes two generations older than us. But here comes this guy, this kind of this this young hip cat, you know, that writes his own songs, and he's Bob Dylan for Pete's sake. So uh, it was riveting. It was great seeing him play. Did you ever have a relationship with him at all throughout your career? No, no. I mean, I met him once, um, uh, which was, you know, I'll briefly, it's a long story, but I'd seen him play several times over the years. Uh, the last time I think I saw him play was in person, it was probably here in Nashville, maybe 15, 16 years ago. But I, I saw him play when he and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers toured together. That was incredible at Red Rocks Amphitheater out in Colorado. And we, we were on the show together at Farm Aid uh, back in 1985. Big, you know, the first Farm Aid fundraising concert. It's about 75,000 people in a stadium in Illinois. And he came in our trailer because we were backing up. We played a set ourselves, but we also backed up our friend John Denver, who was a pal of ours from Colorado. Oh, okay. And he and Dylan knew each other. So Dylan's like... Knocks on the trailer door. He came in and talked to you. You know, we weren't part of the conversation. We just kind of stood back and what did they say? What? <laughs> what did they say? So that was pretty great. I met him a few years later at, at, at a, a post Grammy Awards event in Los Angeles, and a mutual friend of you know guy and I know that played in Dylan's band, Al Cooper, said you should meet Bob. And I'm like, okay, you know, what's that going to be like? I mean, you know, I was angry, of course. I was like, who wouldn't want to meet Bob Dylan? But it was, you know, I said something like, we had recorded one of his songs, uh, a song called You Ain't Going Nowhere, that was on the second Circle album that we did. And that album won a Grammy, won three Grammys the night before. Right. So I was feeling pretty proud of myself. I was like, hey, I get to say, hey, Bob, we want an album with your song on it. And Al said that to Bob. Hey, they want to, you know. And he said, I said, great to meet you. You know, it was so great getting to sing You Ain't Going Nowhere, you know. We got you recorded with Roger McGuinn and Chris Hillman. And he kind of went, you sure did, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> and then somebody said, just kind of grabbed my arm and said, okay, we're done. Let's go to the next. <laughs> next? <laughs> Come meet Bob. I've been analyzing whatever that meant for the last 35 years so it was great I mean it was so great and he that's that's a very typical exchange so I understand from my other friends that have met Bob 
I, and I know some guys that really know him as well. Uh, and he's just a regular cat, you know. I, I, but he's always a mystery. Man of mystery. Right. And going into this album, was there one song that you had in your mind that you felt had to be on the album before you even sort of dove in and started moving things around and looking at the songs? Well, there were a couple. I mean, this, the first song on the album, uh, Tonight I'll Be Staying Here With You, has always been one of my favorites. It's one of his more obscure tunes, I think. Yeah, but it felt great for our band. I mean, that was the first thing we cut, actually, okay. literally. And we, you can hear the enthusiasm in the track. Uh, that was one. We knew that we wanted to do I Shall Be Released because it really fit Bob Carpenter's voice. I knew that was going to be a really cool track. We'll talk more about that in a second, by the way. Sure. Um, and Girl from the North Country was with Jamie singing. It was a no-brainer. He came in with this arrangement. Ross Holmes and Bob Car came up with this really great um, accordion fiddle mandolin thing it's just gorgeous it's one of my favorite tracks on the album but i really wanted to do don't think twice because that went all the way back to when i saw dylan in high school that oh, was okay. like you know sort of a touchstone for me and it felt it felt like a you know it felt right to be on the record right uh but i should mention when we talked about i shall be released our friends larkin poe came in and helped us with that Right, uh, yes. Poe, if you're not familiar with them, are a, a badass rock and roll band. I mean, the Lovell sisters, Megan and Rebecca, uh, they, they've got this killer band, four piece, that just, I mean, they're rocking it. They're like ACDC rocking, you know? They're, and they're wonderful, amazing singers, really great musicians. Uh, and we got to know them. We got to know them. They, they were the support act for the band way back in 2010. And we, oh, wow. we friends and we've stayed in touch over the years, just ran into them. We had just run into them the year before, uh, well, a couple of years before now, because there's that year of nothing. Um, uh, in 2019, our friend Dirks Bentley has a festival called Seven Peaks, which right. is great. He does in Colorado. And Lark and Poe were on the show. Actually, Warren Treaty were on the show as well. So we all kind of reconnected and got, and we invariably, one of the things I love about my friends that make music, you always want to get together and hang out, you know, have a drink or, or, or get a meal, whatever. But it always comes up about like, let's write a song or let's get in the studio and cut something. So, you know, we talked about all that stuff. When we finished the track and with Bob's vocal, because again, Bob's out in LA, he's not going anywhere in 2020. At the beginning of 21, uh, I reached out to them and sent them a tape of the, the basic track of I Shall Be Released. I said, we'd love to have you guys on the record. And they, they hit us right back and said, that would be great. We'd, love, we'd, be, we'd, you know, we'd be honored. So pretty neat, you know? So they came in the studio, uh, Rebecca and Megan, just me and Ray in the studio. And uh, they, we, they sang the second verse together uh, and just, it was beautiful. And they sang all the harmonies on the record with Bob as well. And then Megan, who's a really amazing lap steel guitar player, you know, for those that aren't familiar with it, it's basically sly guitar, you know? Yeah. And he came in and just killed it. We split the solo in the middle and 
We traded riffs going out in the intro of the song. It was all, they were there for like two or three hours. And I mean, they're super pros, so great. And they're also just really, really fine people. So that was great. And so within this journey that you're on and this group of musicians from, you know, back in the day and the newer artists that you get to connect with, what does it mean like for your health? Like does this career and just the camaraderie and the music and it all mixed together, does it really help keep you young? Do you think? Well, I don't, you know, I don't know about keeping me young, but. Uh, Feeling young anyway. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, totally. I mean, it's like, it, it's, there's all these cliches, but really music is our lifeblood. You know, it, it does keep us, uh, it's, it's definitely one of the major reasons to get out of the bed every day. Uh, and being able to get out on the road and play in, in front of people. As much as we love uh, making records, and we really, really do, we love the process, we love writing, we love recording, um, those are always kind of a means to an end. Having a record is like, great, more new songs for the show. Because <laughs> the bottom line is, is just going way back to when we were winning a, a talent contest in a little boat club in California. That's what we love to do. We want to get out in front of people and play for them. And it's a communal experience, you know? I mean, we that energy we get back from, we talk about fishing in the dark, you know, hearing hundreds or thousands of people singing our, these words back to us, to our song is like, wow, that's that's incredible and such a great feeling and we we draw on that energy where if we're on if we've been on the road for a while and you know it's taxing it's not it's not an easy gig it's not glamorous but again we're super grateful to be able to do it but eventually it catches up with you get tired and one of the guys might get sick or whatever um the food's not great you don't get enough sleep but you get out on that stage and these people have, you know, shown up to see you play. That energy is like, boom, right from the jump. You forget about the fact that you were grumpy an hour ago. <laughs> no longer grumpy. Right. And within the, I mean, it's so easy to talk about the highs of this career and the amazing things that have happened. But I wanted to ask you just being in the industry so long. Has there ever been a point where you almost don't feel relevant anymore, like at certain points in your career and you kind of have to get over that feeling? Well, you know, I, I, I think the closest to that, I, mean, I, I don't, I don't think we tend to feel irre irrelevant. That's maybe not the word um, because we've been so lucky again, as as the pop career started fading, boom, here comes the country career. And then on the way out of the country career, here comes Roots or Americana or whatever. Here comes this resurgence of that form of music, which all along we've been part of, you know, going back to the jug band stuff and Will the Circle Be Unbroken and the country rock music, that all fits un under this umbrella of Americana as well. So. We always felt like we've had a home, which is great. Um, as far as as far as the uh, the relevance part, I, I guess that there's a point where you feel like, well, we paid our dues, 
we get a laminate <laughs> to get all access to the rest of this, you know. And I, I, I feel like, you know, a lot of gratitude. I don't mean to sound cocky about that because we've been at this a long time. Yeah. And I've got lots of friends that have put in more miles than we have, honestly, that have not gotten the recognition. Um, so it's not the hard work and the talent are just part of it. The luck is a big part of it as well. Um, and we've been really fortunate. You know, I, I look at guys like Willie Nelson. There's an example of, do you think Willie ever feels irrelevant? You know, I doubt it. So um, you, I think, again, back to making a record, having Seth and Fresh to play, that really, that, that is, a, is a great sort of transfusion for us. It, it gives us, a, it lifts us, you know, as musicians, we want something new. So I, I think that's, it's, it's a lot of it's just kind of up in your head, I think. Yeah, exactly. And one last thing I want to ask just within this career and you're not slowing down, you have a lot of tour dates on the calendar heading into later this year and into festival season. And so within the musical career is it something that you ever see stepping away from or as a musician is it not something you can ever fully step away from it's kind of a loaded question i i i i mean you know again by the time november rolls around in any calendar year and you've been doing it for several months um you've kind of getting a little homesick right uh and, you, and you're kind of looking forward to maybe a break in the action but as far as like hanging it up we that conversation has rarely happened with us you know we've had a few guys come and go uh some of them actually a couple of them actually retired from the road okay. and i honor that and totally understand it because if you're not having a good time out here if you just feel like you've kind of reached your limit with, you know, the, the life of a touring musician, I totally get it. But none of us have. And I'm, again, having the new kids in the band, boy, it's a lot of fun, you know. So I, I don't see any real end in sight, you know, as long as, you know, we're, we're still lucky enough to stay healthy and, and people keep showing up and both those things have been happening. So really grateful for that. Thank you once again so much for listening and thank you to Jeff for stopping by and sharing just some of the stories from his legendary career. Be sure to check out the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band's new album, Dirt Does Dylan, and check out their website for all of their tour dates this year. Please also be sure to check out our website, countrymusicmademe.com. There you can listen to all of our episodes and also sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on all of our upcoming guests and receive exclusive content like acoustic performances from some of our past guests. Just head over to countrymusicmademe.com and hit that subscribe button. You can also find us on any streaming platform. So if streaming is your thing, just head over to your favorite, search Country Music Made Me and give us a follow there as well. And maybe even leave us a review if you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you once again so much for listening and we'll see you next time on Country Music Made Me. Music